Today, the fifth psychopharm commandment, don't mix benzos with opioids in high-risk patients. Welcome to the Carlisle Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlisle Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Industrial medicine is relatively new. It wasn't until 1827 that high-potency, mass-produced medications started to become available. Before that, the pharmacologist was an herbalist, grinding up extracts to treat all kinds of ailments. And with this mass production came high profits, high research budgets, and new cures that we cannot take for granted, like antibiotics and antipsychotics. But there was a drawback to all of this excess, addiction, substance use disorders, and overdose deaths. Those two things are related, but they are not the same. Addiction is when industrial production amplifies the rewarding effects of a medication, either by increasing its potency or boosting its speed of onset. Cocaine, for example, didn't cause much trouble for the indigenous people of South America who chewed the cocoa plant for centuries to lift their energy and mood. But when that chemical was purified in a high-potency form, intranasal cocaine is a different beast. Likewise with tobacco. It was never very healthy, but tobacco didn't cause the kind of addiction and health problems until R.J. Reynolds figured out how to mass-produce the potent quick fix of the packaged cigarette a delivery system that allowed people to inhale more nicotine per hour than ever before. Industrial opioids entered the scene with heroin, made by Bayer, the same company that brought us aspirin. Heroin replaced the less potent opium, and it did so at an opportune time. As America was recovering from the Civil War and hundreds and thousands wounded veterans were suffering chronic pain. The drug proved useful, but it was also deadly. And by 1900, there was an opioid epidemic in America. People were using opioids not just for pain, but for all that ails. Insomnia, depression, anxiety, GI distress, etc. Soon, industrial medicine developed an unlikely replacement to come to the rescue. Barbiturates. When barbiturates came out in the early 1900s, they were welcomed as a safer alternative to opioids, particularly for people with psychiatric complaints. At first, they were safer, but production revved up after World War II, and it was around that time, 1945, that the death rate started to climb from overdoses on barbiturates. You might be familiar with the prominent lives that were lost to barbiturates during that epidemic. Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, Jimi Hendrix. But for every celebrity, there are many more deaths among the uncelebrated. Most of these deaths did not involve suicide or addiction. People simply took a little too much of the barbiturate, maybe to calm their nerves or to sleep, or they combined it with alcohol. But a little too much, and they stopped breathing. That's similar to what's happening with the opioid epidemic today. We're going to get to that. It's the subject of our podcast. Barbiturate overdoses peaked in 1960, and here's why. 
It was in that year that the pharmaceutical industry released yet another solution, chlordiazepoxide, Librium, the first benzodiazepine, followed a few years later by its metabolite diazepam, Valium. Benzos were less potent than barbiturates when it came to anxiety and insomnia, but they had a considerable advantage. It was very hard to overdose on them. If you took too many, it would knock you out and you'd likely wake up after a long sleep, but it wouldn't stop your breathing. Actual deaths from benzodiazepine overdose were and remain very rare. What has changed and brought us to the third epidemic is a new medication with much more perilous effects, the benzo-opioid combo. To be fair, no one has ever marketed a benzo-opioid combo pill, and I don't know of any physicians who endorse this unwise combo. Its rise was inadvertent and it began in the 1990s when the pharmaceutical industry partnered with optimistic physicians who believed that medicine was ignoring an epidemic of pain. Either because doctors were afraid of getting their patients addicted to opioids, or they just thought that a stiff upper lip was the best approach to pain. Those hesitant physicians turned out to be right. Opioids may not be very addictive in the population that they were FDA-approved for, cancerous pain. But when given outside that population for other kinds of pains, about 8 to 26% of patients develop addictive behaviors on them, ranging from drug misuse to an opioid use disorder. Opioids are also not very effective for chronic pain. They cause tolerance in many patients, leading to higher and higher doses. And as the dose goes up, so does the risk of accidental overdose because opioids can bring respiration to a stop. This is where benzodiazepines come in. They don't suppress breathing enough to cause death on their own, but when combined with opioids or other respiratory suppressants like alcohol, they can. Benzodiazepines are involved in a little over half of opioid fatalities, and when you prescribe a benzodiazepine to a patient on an opioid, it raises their risk of overdose death two to fourfold. No one anticipated how big this problem would be. But whether it's because of muscle spasms or psychiatric symptoms, a lot of patients who were placed on opioids were also taking a benzodiazepine. And if they weren't, they might start seeking them because benzodiazepines enhance the opioid high. There is a cross-addiction between benzos and opioids that is just as powerful as the more well-known cross-addiction that happens between benzos and alcohol. For example, if you prescribe a benzo to a person who is in recovery from an opioid use disorder, it makes them more likely to relapse into opioid use, even if they don't misuse the benzo. Anna Nicole Smith, Amy Winehouse, Heath Ledger, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Thomas Kincaid, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Prince. Tom Petty? That's an abbreviated list of celebrities who died of drug overdose between 2007 and 2017. And although most of those deaths involved opioids, and in the case of Michael Jackson, propofol, in each case there was another familiar medication on board, a benzodiazepine. As awareness of the benzo-opioid risks grew, the FDA placed a warning on benzodiazepines in 2016. Let's read that. 
Concomitant use of benzodiazepines and opioids may result in profound sedation, respiratory depression, coma, and death. Reserve concomitant prescribing of these drugs for use in patients for whom alternative treatment options are inadequate. Limit dosages and durations to the minimum required. Follow patients for signs and symptoms of respiratory depression and sedation. The FDA's advice there is well-intended, but not very useful, because they are telling us to do what we've been doing all along. Try other options first and minimize the dose and duration of a benzodiazepine. These tax-funded tips don't tell us what we need to know. Where do we draw the line? When is it reasonable to continue the benzodiazepine? And when do we need to stop it? So we went on a deep dive to figure that out. And you'll find it all in a chart in the Carlat Report. If you subscribe to the journal, you'll find it in the September 2018 issue in an article called New Risks with an Old Drug. Or if you have our textbook Prescribing Psychotropics, the chart is on page 136. We'll summarize and update that article for you here. We divide patients into three risk categories. Red light, where you need to hold the benzo. Yellow light, where the risks are high and you better do all you can to minimize them and justify the use. And a flickering green light. Flickering because benzos and opioids are never really safe together. But we can at least carve out a group where the risk is low. The red light is pretty clear. Don't use benzos with opioids in patients with active prescription misuse active addiction to benzos, opioids, alcohol, or other sedatives, history of sedative overdose, methadone use, or on maintenance therapy for opioid use disorder. That last one deserves some comment. Methadone in particular has a high rate of overdose death, probably because of the drug's long half-life. It tends to linger around, giving more opportunities for accidents. For patients in MAT maintenance opioid therapy, we just recommend you defer to the MAT program. Some MAT programs might prescribe the two together because they believe the risk of death will be higher if they turn those patients away and they die on the streets. But that's a tough call to make, and after the call is made, it requires careful follow-up that is best provided by the MAT program itself. Next come the yellow lights. These are patients who have psychiatric or medical problems that increase their risk of overdose, or ones who are taking high doses of opioids. By high doses, we mean greater than or equal to 50 morphine milligram equivalents. That's 50-5-0. Your state's controlled substance monitoring program might give you that number, or you can calculate the conversion online. Just Google Oregon Opioid Calculator, Oregon, as in the state. Psychiatric problems that raise caution here and bring people into the yellow light category include a history of sedative alcohol or opioid use disorder that's now in remission, borderline or antisocial personality disorder, or an unstable psychiatric disorder such as severe depression, active mania, or psychosis. Medical disorders that cause problems here and raise the risk of death are any kind of respiratory disease like COPD or sleep apnea and any systemic medical illness. We're talking HIV, organ failure, renal or hepatic impairment, or pregnancy. Also, the elderly at more at risk, so anyone over 65 is going to be at greater risk 
for respiratory suppression from benzos and opioids. The last level is the flickering green light, and that's anyone who doesn't have the problems above. So if your patient is a young adult who is psychiatrically and medically stable, has no history of substance use disorders, and is on a low dose of a short-acting opioid that they take as needed for shoulder pain, the opioid-benzo combo is not ideal, but it is much safer. With the red light, you stop. With the green light, you can keep going sometimes. But what do you do with the yellow light? We're not comfortable just following the FDA's advice here and continuing the benzo if it's psychiatrically necessary and other options have failed. That's good advice, we think, for the green light. But the risk of death here is just too high to keep the benzo going in a lot of these patients with the yellow light. The lifetime mortality rates tell it best. The chance of a person dying in their lifetime is 100%. But there are thousands of things that might kill you. The lifetime mortality rate breaks that down. In 2020, the most common cause of death were heart disease, one in six deaths, and cancer, one in seven. COVID-19 was one in 12, suicide, one in 93, car accident, one in 101. But opioid overdose is more likely than suicide or car accidents at 1 in 67. And despite all the warnings, that rate is not going down. It was 1 in 93, just three years earlier in 2017. Those rates apply to all people, not just the ones who took an opioid. So 1 in 67 deaths are due to an opioid overdose. And benzos are going to raise that risk two to fourfold. Here are some strategies to lower that risk for patients who are in the yellow light. 1. Switch the benzo to oxazepam. This one has the lowest risk of accidental overdose because it has a short half-life and it's slow to come on. It takes effects over 1 to 2 hours instead of 20 to 30 minutes like most other benzos, which means that oxazepam is less rewarding and less reinforcing you're less likely to take too much. And if you can't switch your patient to oxazepam for any reason, lorazepam, Ativan, is the second safest. Clonazepam, on the other hand, clonopin, and diazepam, valium, and alprazolam, Xanax, are the worst. Basically, any benzo that is highly rewarding and lingers for a long time is bad news. Number two. Try alternatives. A lot of patients are reluctant to try alternatives for their anxiety when they're on a benzo, but you can enforce it here by telling them that you're not able to prescribe the benzo unless they give the alternative an honest try. Think outside the box here. SSRIs and buspirone are not the only options for anxiety, and they don't have very large effect sizes anyway. There's also hydroxazine. And there's pregabalin Lyrica. It has a large effect size in generalized anxiety and social anxiety disorders. The dose is around 300 to 600 milligrams at night. But pregabalin is not the ideal route because there is some evidence that it can increase the risk of overdose with opioids as well. Also, consider CAM treatments like chamomile or silexin. Silexin is a proprietary med in Germany and Europe that is extracted from lavender. 
And its effect size in generalized anxiety is comparable to that of benzos, around 0.8 to 0.9, and much larger than the effect size for SSRIs. Check out our August 2020 issue online for full details on how to use and where to purchase Silexin. And if your patient has bipolar disorder and is taking a benzo, consider quetiapine, Seroquel, and Depakote. Both of these have good evidence to help anxiety. Number three, taper the benzo slowly when your patient is in the yellow light and get it down to zero or the lowest feasible dose. When assessing the need for a benzo, look at whether the drug is improving their functioning, not just how they feel. And is the use of the benzo evidence-based? The best evidence supporting benzo use is in panic disorder, for which they are FDA-approved, followed by generalized and social anxiety disorders. Benzos are controversial in PTSD, and they do not treat OCD or ADHD for that matter. There are short-term studies in depression and acute mania with benzos, but benzos are not indicated long-term in mood disorders. Number four, believe in your patient. Benzodiazepine withdrawal is miserable, but if it's done slowly, it's not dangerous. Patients will call you and try to convince you that there is no possible way they can go on. Your job in these situations is not to raise the benzo, but to believe in them, not the drug. This will get better. Believe that the simple interventions like mindfulness meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, deep breathing, stretching, exercise, and getting good sleep are all going to improve anxiety. Michael Otto developed a CBT therapy for benzo withdrawal, and there's a patient guide and a therapist guide available. It's called Stopping Anxiety Medication. Number five, check the controlled substance database and coordinate with the physician who is prescribing the opioid. If you're not comfortable prescribing the benzo, you can let that doctor know that you think it's appropriate for the patient's psychiatric condition, but only if the benzo is managed by the same doctor who is prescribing the opioid. There is evidence that the risk of death is lower when one clinician manages both drugs. If that doctor is not comfortable prescribing the benzo, it may be a sign that you should not be either. We'll be back in two weeks with the Sixth Commandment, Controlled Substances Shall Be Controlled, where we look at how to manage red flags of substance misuse with controlled prescriptions. Until then, catch us on Thursdays for a new edition of the podcast stream, Throwback Thursdays. We're dusting off our old episodes, updating the content, and adding CME credits. And give yourself some CME credit for listening to this episode through the link on the show notes.